Lord, we do come to you now um, with grateful expectation that Advent brings. And the grateful expectation is that we are needy and you're going to meet that need over and over and over again. And so we pray that as we come to the text for sustenance that you would again feed us, um, strengthen us, encourage us, give us joy, give us peace. And I pray knowing... um, Knowing what the text commands of us, I pray for a softness and a humility this morning to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, we're actually going to start in verse 19. Dawson, I should have told you that. We're going back to 19, last minute change. I'm sorry, but um, so if you want to open up your, your Bibles, and if you're new with us or you're visiting or you just haven't seen these, these are on the table out there in the, in the entryway. And they're amazing. It's just a scripture journal. Basically, it has text and then space for you to take notes. And they're awesome, and they're our gift to you. So please, if you're without a Bible this morning, go grab one. We won't judge you as you stand up and get one. We promise. We want you to have the scripture in front of you. So if you want to open up um, uh, to John chapter 12, verse 19. We come to this passage, and it's this very interesting, counterintuitive statement that Jesus makes, that if you want life, you have to lose your life, that if you love your life, then you're actually going to lose it. Thinking about this passage in preparation for today, and I was thinking about like, you know they post those signs on the beach for rip currents, stay out of the water, the rip currents. If you're like me... And signs that are posted tend to feel more like optional suggestions in these situations, then it's good to know like how to deal with a rip current. And the fascinating thing is like rip, the rip current will pull you away from shore. So our natural instinct is actually one of the most deadly things for us, because what's your natural instinct? Is to swim with all your might back to the beach, right? The problem is that even like the best swimmers, if the rip current is strong enough, have no chance. And so they end up more exhausted and more likely to drown. So what they say is actually, like, fight as much as you want. It's not going to help. You're actually better off letting it take you out until you can swim sideways and get out of the currents that you can come back in. It's this counterintuitive idea that that actually what seems like leading you towards death is your only way to find life. Find the similar thing here with Jesus telling us that whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 19, just as far as structure goes, if you're a note taker, we're going to be asking five questions this morning. We're going to be asking and answering five questions this morning. They're pretty simple. Um, One is just core to how we understand what Jesus is talking about here. Three arise from the text itself. And then one is an implied question that I think we each have to answer for ourselves. Okay, so five questions. First is this. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? How do you get this eternal life (coughs) that he talks about? I don't want to get too complicated. You know, there's probably like a million different definitions of following Christ. One of the fancy, like, Christian words we hear a lot that is, you know, it's following Christ is just discipleship. And if you were to buy 20 books on discipleship, you would find 20 different definitions of what it is, okay? 
So I say all that because I'm going to give you a simple definition of following Jesus that I think works pretty well, and here's what it is. It just means obeying him and doing what he likes, avoiding what he dislikes, and imitating his character. Okay, I'll say it again. Following Jesus is obeying him, doing what he likes, avoiding what he dislikes, and imitating his character. Now that's most of a definition of what it means to follow Jesus. And I say that it's most of a definition because there's a lot of religious people, there's a lot of Minnesotans who follow Jesus and do not have eternal life. Because all of the things that I listed in that definition and most of the things you'll see as you read definitions of what discipleship is, is like something that can be accomplished on the outside But obviously, like, the Bible is always pointing past the outside to the heart. So following Jesus goes deeper than just what we do. But what this means is that there's a lot of people who believe that they follow Jesus when actually what they're, at, what they're doing is motivated by something, something else, what I'm going to call diseased motivations, that cause them to look religious or Christian on the outside, but fall short of what Jesus calls us to in this passage that falls short of true belief that leads to true following of Jesus. Let me give you some of these disease motivations now. I think it will be a helpful frame for us as we think about the passage this morning. The first disease motivation is this, people-pleasing. There are many religious people who do Christian things because they want to be liked by Christian people. People-pleasing. They serve the church because they want religious people to think highly of them. They attend, they give, they obey the commandments outwardly, but it's not driven by a love for Jesus. It's driven by a love for people who follow Jesus' praise. Like, I want, I want you guys to like me, so I'm going to come to church every Sunday and I'm going to be involved. I want your approval. One of the symptoms of this disease motivation is pretty obvious. There's going to be a discrepancy between who they are when they're around Christians and who they are when they're not. So their Sunday morning persona is different than their Tuesday afternoon at work and their Friday night on the town and their Saturday morning with their family. And you end up with this, with a lot of effort being put into like talking the right way or having, the, or having your children act the right way is another symptom. Because there's this underlying fear of being rejected by Christians or of being found out that what you see on the outside is shinier than what's actually on the inside. This is the people-pleasing motivation for following Christ. There's another disease motivation that I'll call guilt-relieving. Guilt-relieving motivation. And this disease motivation is driven by moralism. Basically, it's like internally I have this scale of the good things I do and the bad things I do and I really need the good things to outweigh the bad things because then I'll feel good about myself. And that is the motivating factor is like to dull and lessen the feeling of guilt inside so I can go about my life feeling good about myself. There's a lot <clears throat> here. Maybe uh, um, you can imagine there's some kind of like internal tally or like I know that there's stains and I'm scrubbing really hard to get them off. And that's what Christian activity is. It's scrubbing to get the stains off. It's driven by 
guilt and by fear of being rejected. There's a third disease motivation, and it's, I'll call it wheeling and dealing. The wheeling and dealing Christian <clears throat> follows Jesus out of a motivation that when life goes sideways, I want someone I can turn to to fix it. A symptom of this would be like your prayer life is kind of a break-in-case-of-emergency prayer life. Your relationship with God is he's the fixer that I go to when things are real bad, real bad. And so we wheel and deal with God, like, okay, God, I'll stop sinning if you provide this. Or, God, can you please heal this person, my friend, my family member, me, because you saw how many times I went to church this year. The wheeling and dealing motivation can look a lot like religiosity, but it is not following Christ. There's a fourth and, and final disease motivation that I want to <clears throat> mention. And for those of you who are like under the age of 20, this is under the age of 22, 23. Yeah, saw Amanda in the crowd. Okay. Be like, um, it's definitely possible for adults to fit into this uh, category. But just like in my experience, working with young people, this was often, this is like, why I share the gospel every, every youth group, you know? Because there are a lot of young people that fall into the category of the disease motivation that they follow Christ because it's inherited. Their motivation is like, this is how it's done. This is how I've seen it done by my parents. But adults, you're not off the hook because I've like, talked with enough adults and the symptom of like, I think, that, I think their motivation for following Jesus is because they talk about their relationship with the with the Lord in terms of what they don't do. Like, I, I'm a Christian, so I don't X, Y, Z. And it's like the primary driver. And why do I say like those two things are connected? Because they view the activities of the Christian less in terms of like joy from their own salvation that would like flow out naturally if they believed, but rather they've like held on to a culture into adulthood that makes them comfortable. So now their idea of following Christ is doing something, right? It's, it's being the right fit for this culture of Christianity that I grew up in. One of the uh, <clears throat> ways I've experienced this one is haircuts. This sounds confusing, but follow me. One of the, uh, I'm going con- to make a confession, which is one of the nice parts about uh, changing from a role where I was doing full-time ministry to, you know, a job in sales, is like, when I go to get a haircut, my barbers no longer feel compelled to confess to me that they need to get back to church soon, you know? <laughs> it's like you sit, down in the, you sit down in the chair, it's like, what do you do? It's like, oh, crap. Um, I work for a nonprofit that helps, like, young people, you know, like, the church. Uh, <laughs> it's like, and then there, and then oh man, I got to get back, I got to get back to church. Yeah, I went to church growing up a lot. I love church. You know, like, let's just talk about the Vikings. It's fine, you know? Anyway, that, that's a confession. But, but the, I think that's driven by like this like inner, you know, <laughs> motivation to want, want what Jesus offers but not understand how you actually get it. And the reason like you want it is not because you want him. It's because something having to do with yourself. I want to relieve the guilt. I want to feel good about myself. I want to be a good person. And so we end up with a lot of Christians, and a lot, let, me, let me say it this way, we end up with a lot of 
religious people who chase out, who do these things that would look like following Jesus, and actually they aren't following Jesus. And the result of these motivations is one of two camps, like one of two buckets. Bucket A, you're going to fall into, if you pursue Christ with these disease motivation, will be you're left empty. You're left empty because these don't actually fill your greatest need. The other would be that you're crushed under their weight because you can't do enough to make the disease part of this motivation fix the disease part of you. So you, em- you end up empty or you end up crushed. Now, nearly every Sunday, <clears throat> I text Jeremy during his sermon how long it took him to get from his introduction into the Bible. Because I think his introductions get a little bit long, okay? And I knew I was going to start this way, so I... I I got rid of his criticism ahead of time by telling him that I was going to do this. But let's look at the text now, okay? <laughs> Actually, one more thing. Sorry. <clears throat> I forgot to tell you what the, what, the re- what the motivation of the real Christian is. It's oversight. The, the motivation of the true Christian, the true believer, following Jesus, obeying him, doing what he likes, avoiding what he dislikes, and imitating his character is what? Thankfulness. It's like being a Christian is really simple. You do these things, why? Because you're thankful for what he's done for you. That's it. You love him, so you obey his commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. Your love for him and the gratefulness that pours out because of who he did, who he is and what he did on the cross is what drives you to follow him, to obey him, to enjoy him, to share him with others. Thankfulness. I watched this video the other day short one, with this uh, brother giving his sister a card, and in the card he says, read it, and in the card he tells her that he's paid off all of her student debt. He had come into some money, and he wanted to spend it on her. And so, you know, she's reading through the card, and she gets to the part where she realizes what he's done for her. And she starts to, like, you know, get emotional, and she stands up, and she gives him a hug, and then she, like, holds him at arm's length, and she says, I only got you shorts, you know? The Christian life is giving Jesus shorts, you know? As we're like, we're so grateful that he paid off our debt, that we're so thankful for all that he did, and we, we avoid the things he do- dislikes, a pair of shorts, you know? Like, we do our best to give him whatever we can, not out of guilt, not out of like, and I, wanting to feel good about ourselves or feel like we're a good person, but because we're grateful. This is the simple process of following Jesus. Okay. Here's the first of the three questions the text has us ask. Who can follow Jesus? Verse 19. This is going back to the passage from last week. So the Pharisees said to one another, we're in chapter 12 of the book of John. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're upset because now the crowd is following Jesus, not listening to them. The world has gone after them. Now the Pharisees are wrong about a lot. They're wrong about a lot, but they're not wrong about this. And we see that they were actually exactly right in verse 20. Because what do we see after they say the world has gone after him? Which does not mean like everybody has gone after him. It means like people from all over. This has gone beyond the bounds of the Jewish people. The world, the nations have gone after him. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Immediately after the Pharisees, you know, share their distress... 
that now Jesus has got a following. He's opened the doors of this religion he's talking about beyond the bounds of the Jewish people. And the Greeks go to see Jesus. They were exactly right. They first go to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, they probably went to Philip, and I, would, I, and I think we have good reason to believe they went to Philip because of that little section that said who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. He was closer to where they came from. He was Jewish, but he was probably the one where they're like, this is our inn. He, he knows Greek people. He's like close to our hometown, okay? <clears throat> um, and so they go to him, and they say, we want to see Jesus. And we, ever, we never actually find out if they get to see Jesus, Okay? The point of the Greeks going to see Jesus is to emphasize that the door has now opened for the Gentiles. It's not about the Greeks themselves, what happens with them, because we don't actually find out if they ever meet Jesus. You see the next verse, Philip hears this from the Greeks, then he goes and tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus. There's a lot of red tape at this point, apparently, to like go meet Jesus, but this is what happens. And Jesus answers them, Andrew and Philip. See, we don't know if he ever <coughs> goes to the Greeks. But what we can pull from this part of the passage is the answer to who can follow Jesus, and that's whoever seeks him. You. You know, it's like, I think because we're removed from the first century, this is a little bit harder for us to grasp. It's like, you can follow Jesus. And this was not always true. You know, it's like, this is for a certain ethnic people that were God's people. Israel, in the Old Testament, were God's people. And now the door has opened for the Greeks, which just means the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So, who can follow Jesus? You can. We can. And it's worth noting here, it's worth noting here, like, Jesus is about to <clears throat> predict his death again. And Jeremy mentioned this last week, but basically for the rest of our time in John, we're going to be in the final week of Jesus' life. Time will progress a lot more slowly in the scriptures than it will in Minnesota as we get through like, the, the book of John. We're in his last week of his life, and it is at this point where he begins predicting his death. And it's fascinating that he waits until the Greeks come to see him. He waits until he can make it clear that the door is open beyond the realm of what the Pharisees would say for salvation. And then he talks about his death and describes finding eternal life. Now the Pharisees cannot comprehend this. It's hard to believe that the, his disciples even comprehend this. But this is what, what Jesus says. We come to the second question. Verses 23 is where we begin. And the second question is this. How can you follow Jesus? Who can follow Jesus? Everyone. Whoever believes. How can you follow Jesus? Jesus replies, he answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, he's emphasizing it. It's like, lean forward and listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, <coughs> excuse me, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the response to the Greek's inquiry. It's worth noting that the hour, as it's used throughout the book of John, is referring to this time where he will die. He will suffer and die on the cross and then raise again. That is the hour. When the Bible writes about the hour, this is what it's uh, talking about in the book of John, is the passion of the Christ, his death and resurrection. And up until now, every time he's talking about the hour, it's been like a future thing. 
Now he says it's here. It's time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says this like on the back of coming into town with like people shouting Hosanna, you know? People shouting, the King has come. Hosanna, Hosanna. This is after Palm Sunday. And he says, not during Palm Sunday. That wasn't my glorification. When people were praising me and saying the King has come and saying Hosanna, Hosanna, that's not my glorification. My glorification is actually when the colonel falls to the ground and dies. He says his death. So this is like, fascinating reversal of what you would expect glory to be like. But his glory did not come at Palm Sunday. His glory came on Good Friday. Here we go. The result of his glorification is the much fruit of salvation. Not only did the religious leaders of the day not understand that why Jesus would open the door to those outside, right, to the Greeks who would come and seek him, they, don't under, they also don't understand what he came to do, you know? They were expecting the Messiah, the Messiah to free them from rule. In their day, it would have been the Roman rule, but Jesus had come for another reason. So it's like we know that Christmas song, it's like, long lay the world in sin and error pining. This is the problem that Jesus came to solve, which is why his glory would not come as like a conquering king with his praises being sung by the horde of people, but he had come to conquer something else, not Rome, not oppression by people, not flesh and blood. He had come to get rid of sin, and so it would be death that would bring him glory. His death, it's like, how do do you follow Christ? His death, part one, his death is what enables you to follow Christ. So you think about standing, think about standing in a room, spotlight on you. Okay, like we dim all the lights and there's a spotlight on the stage and you stand up here. And you say, look at this shadow I created. Look at my shadow, it's awesome. It looks like me. This is my shadow. And then someone turns all the lights off. It's like, where's your shadow? I don't know, I, you know, like, I, I don't know, I can't create it. And it turns out that we don't create our own shadow, what creates our shadow is the light coming past our outline of us, right? So in the same way, his death enables us to follow him because the cross is like the light that sheds, it sheds light on his shape so that we might be like a shadow. It is not something we create on our own strength, it comes from outside of us. The cross is the light that creates a shadow that looks like him in the world. That is what enables us to follow him is his death. His death, and apart from his death, we have no ability, no ability to truly follow him. Now, because Jesus makes it possible for us to follow him, he can show us a map of what it looks like. So how do we follow him? Well, he dies and that makes it possible, and then... We get to verse 25 and 26, which is this. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Jesus uses a rhetorical tool here that he's used in other scriptures when he talks about, like, love something or hate something. Love something or hate something. He's, let let me say first what he's not saying. He's not talking about some kind of self-loathing, okay, when he talks about hatred. As an example, many of you know, some of you don't, but you all should. The Packers are the best, okay? 
I love the Packers, all right? I am a Packer fan. Now, in our house, I, I love the Packers, but in our house, that does not mean, and my daughters have had a hard time, like, comprehending this. We've had to, like, come together on it, okay? It does not mean I, like, sit here and actively hate the Dolphins, you know? Or the Browns, or the Steelers, or the Lions, okay? It just means I love the Packers. But when the Packers go up against the Dolphins, or the Steelers, or the Browns, my allegiance is clear. I will always cheer for the Packers, okay? What he, when, he, when Jesus talks about you must either, like, hate your own life or love your own life, and this is what determines whether you find eternal life or you lose your life, he's talking about supremacy, He's not talking about like you hate yourself. He's saying what is supreme in the center of your world? Is it your own life, your own self-centeredness, your own pride? Or is it me? He's not saying you have to hate yourself, but he's saying that when your pride butts up against what God wants, what wins? Where is your supreme allegiance? This is how Jesus is talking about this idea of like you in order to keep your life for eternal life, you must hate your life in this world. He's going up against like, it's a rejection of self-centered pride, which is the original sin Adam and Eve commit in the garden. The original sin Adam and Eve commit in the garden, the original sin that lives in the hearts of everyone who's walked the earth, which is self-centeredness, that the world revolves around us. <clears throat> it's not a hatred of self but it is a rejection of self as God. Jesus came to rid us of sin, and in particular, he came up to rid us of the foundational sin of self-centered pride. He came to show us that what we're looking for isn't found inside of us. That's why none of those diseased motivations work, because they're all self-centered, like, I don't want to feel guilty, I want to feel praised, I want to feel loved, and this is what drives us. <clears throat> He came to, to rid us of that so that we might place him at the center and in doing so find true life. And this involves death. He says, whoever, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Whoever hates their life in this world will keep it forever. I think Romans 6 is really helpful for understanding the kind of death that we're talking about here. So let me just read a couple verses from Romans 6. Verse 5. For we have been united with him in death like his, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. This is the gospel. Jesus pulls up in his car and he says, hop in. And you say, where are we going? And he says, we're going to the grave. We have to bring your sin to the grave and we're going to drop it off there and leave it behind. But it's the only way to go on the journey with him is to first go to the cemetery to first be lowered down with your sin so that you might come up without it, like you don't have to take it with you anymore. This is, this is the good news that he offers, but the only way is to lose your life. Like the only way to go on the journey with him, the only way to follow him, to truly follow him, to truly serve him, is to first die for that old self to be crucified in a death like his. 
so that you might have a resurrection like his. To lose your life so that you might find eternal life is to lose the sin of self-centered pride and instead place Jesus at the center. Practically speaking, like what does that look like? <coughs> Excuse me. Practically speaking, it looks like a rejection of the idea that God owes you. Like there's a lot of bitter and angry religious people who think God owes them better. It's a re- like practically, it's a rejection of the idea that when bad things happen, you deserve better. And it's God's fault. And how dare he? Practically, it's a rejection of the idea that the world should bend to you. That God should bend his knee to you. That your plan for your life, what it should look like, what you should go through or not have to go through, you have a better idea than he does. Which is, can I tell you something just like pastorally? It's not to say at all, for even a second, that you are unimportant. Pride is thinking more highly of yourself than you should. This is what Jesus is trying to kill in us, telling us to put to death on the cross with him. But it is not saying that you're not important. Like, if you look at Jesus going to the cross, how can you look at that and say you're not important, you know? He wouldn't die if you weren't. His glory is in taking those who think more highly of themselves and giving them far more than they deserve. Is they're important to him. <clears throat> All of that to say, it's like it's grace that you have been saved through faith and it's not because we deserve it. So in order to be a Christian, you have to believe you don't actually deserve it. You know, It's like the prerequisite, like he says in Matthew, is blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The prerequisite to following Christ is A, that he would die to enable us to and B, that we would die, that our pride would die. That our self-centeredness would die that says we could save ourselves. Which also means that none of the disease motivation is actually following Jesus. Losing your life is not a call to do the right thing. It's not a call to make religious people think highly of yourself or to lessen your feelings of guilt or to get God on your side for emergencies. All of these motivations are driven by a self-centeredness that tries to like bubble wrap our idea, like our inflated idea of how good we are. Except the reality is like the vase is already broken inside. We need to take the bubble wrap off so that he can remake us. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means obeying him by doing what he likes, avoiding what he dislikes, imitating his character in a way that is motivated solely by thankfulness for what he's done. Who can follow Jesus? Anyone who believes. How can we follow Jesus? Because his death is a light that enables us to be his shadow. It shines on him, not on us. It shines on him, but then we take his shape. Why should we follow Jesus? And this is, the, <clears throat> this is the big one, isn't it? We get two reasons here very quickly. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Number one, you get eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
be, the Father will honor you. The Father Father will honor the idea that you have put your trust no longer in yourself, but in Christ. And so bestow upon you all the riches that come from being in Christ. Simply put, we'll find a life in Jesus that the Father will honor. We'll find a way out from bitterness and guilt, from the need to be praised. We'll find an escape from those things. And Jesus doesn't ask, you know, he doesn't like, this is maybe helpful. It's like, Jesus doesn't ask for a little. He doesn't, he doesn't ask for a lot. He asks for everything, you know. He asks you at, at the core of the gospel as him asking you to transfer the faith you've placed in yourself to faith in him. And then in return, he gives you what is in him in place of what you had yourself. It's like, a, yes, it's a costly trade, but it's also a really good trade because it's, it's shorts for your debt paid, you know? There is another question. There is another question we have to ask, and this one doesn't necessarily like arise directly from the text, but I think it's like a good pastoral one that we need to answer ourselves. <coughs> Sorry. Because when he says, like, you're going to lose your life and you'll find eternal life, He's not saying you're going to lose your life and you're going to find an easy life. Eternal life is not easy life in this world. Eternal life is not easy life in this world. Eternal life is not easy life in this world. Like, say it a bunch of times because it's really true. So, the question, the final question you have to ask yourself is, how do I know if I actually follow Jesus? How do I know if I actually follow Jesus? Because eternal life is not the same as easy life, which means you're going you're gonna to follow Jesus and then you're going to go through stuff, bad stuff, really difficult, hard things that will make you grieve and you will lose things and you will lose people and you will be disappointed and you will have times that make you afraid. And it's like, that's where you have to believe that what he offers you is not easy life, but eternal life. Peter puts it this way in the first chapter, he says, of, of, the, of the letter he wrote, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You have had to suffer grief in various kinds of trials. Why? So that you would find out if you actually follow Jesus. You have to. The only way to know is like when, when bad things happen. That's how you know. Do you still cling to him? Do you still trust him? Do you still believe his promises? Whether we like it or not, I don't know why I wrote it that way. You're not going to like it. It's like whether you like suffering or not. You, know? um, you most certainly won't. It's like you will suffer grief and this is what's going to prove if you actually believe or not. It's like it takes away all of the outer stuff, all of the, like, those, those disease motivations. What happens when you suffer and you've been doing it because, like, you wanted praise from people, you know? It's not working. <clears throat> Self-centeredness can give you the illusion that it's working as long as things are going smoothly, but it topples under the impact of suffering and it reveals our self-reliance and our self-protection. 
And it reveals that like those things will fail us in the long run, and then comes despair. This is like the path of the religious who don't know Christ. It always ends in despair. When I was a, um, a junior in college, <clears throat> is when I understood this. Um, and like all my life up to that point, grew up in the church, grew up in a Christian family, had some of that inherited faith, had some of that guilt relieving, had some of that wheeling and dealing like I had, that people pleasing, because I was like, I'm doing these things on the weekend, and then I'm going to, you know, like my crew meeting, you know, it's like I had all of them, okay, I was really good at those disease motivations, but it all started to crumble, and I remember this one night in the midst of it, when it had gotten dark, I went to hang out with some friends, my buddy Neil was there, Neil was a Christian, like a real one, you know, like always sharing his faith with people, like he was genuinely loved the Lord, and I knew that he knew that my walk with the Lord was fraudulent, and that that was the reason I was so broken, and I hated it, and so I have this like vivid memory of being like, I do not want to be around Neil, you know, He's, he's too Christian. He's making my Christianity look bad. That's probably a different disease motivation. I don't know. But I remember going outside because I didn't want to be around him anymore and going to the backyard in the dark and I was so mad at God. And I fell to my knees. And you don't have to fall to your knees to like follow Jesus, but I did. In that moment, it seemed like the right thing to do. And I fell to my knees and I remember crying and I remember saying, fine, fine. You do it. That's what I said to God. You do it. You be in charge of my life. And then, then, then it became real. And I could go home. I remember like reading the Bible in the days after, and it was like, it was like truer than it had been before. You know? It was like a deeper shade I was, like C.S. Lewis talks about, I was further up and further in to the gospel. And, and my self-centeredness had gone away because I finally realized my self-centeredness didn't work, you know? They came into conflict with Jesus and, I, and my allegiances switched, switched by his grace. <clears throat> that was it. I lost my life and I found his. And... Um, and, and, I, and I realized, too, and this is something you realize when you come to faith in Christ, is that, like, yeah, you go through suffering, but he's never done you any wrong. And that's, like, a hard thing, I think, to, like, tie together. But you go through suffering, and you realize, like, I went, I went through suffering, and it was not Jesus being mean to me. It was not God being uncaring. It was actually the opposite. It was actually him being kind to get me to a place where I could find life peeling back my self-reliance. Let me end with this. I have a bonus question, which is, when should you follow Jesus? And the answer is today. So if you, like, if you come to this church and you sit in pews, I hope, I hope you hear me when I say like, he offers eternal life to you. And it's very possible that if you do some digging, you're like, actually, I'm pretty self-reliant. Actually, I think I worship myself, and I think I sit in this pew because I worship myself, because I want Christians to like me, or because I don't want to feel guilty for the things that I've done, or because I want a backup plan when there's emergencies, or because this is what my parents did. 
And I just want to tell you to make the trade. Make the trade. Lose your life. Find his. And then let us spend the rest of your life just joyfully doing what he likes as a gift of thanksgiving. Instead of like the weight of I have to do this so that God likes me. When should you follow Jesus? Follow him today. If you have never like done that, you never placed your trust in him solely, him only, come talk to me after. Come talk to Pete after. We would love to pray with you. Let me pray now for all of us. Father, you give us this command to follow you on your way to the cross, and that is a difficult thing. Because it's like, why would we want to follow you to the cross? But Lord, I pray that we would. I pray that we would find you to be good, to be kind, to be loving. And I pray that we would be honest with ourselves about what we actually trust and what we actually worship. And if our following of you is coming from a place of thanksgiving or somewhere else, Lord, would you meet us, heal us, and give us the eternal life you offer. In Jesus' name, amen.